You are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Ephemeral, multi-voiced, responsive. In addition to concert music, composer Drake Anderson's work encompasses collaborative projects for dance and theater, electronic improvisations, and interactive sound environments. His music is characterized by elements of indeterminacy and improvisation, and the use of new musical interfaces and custom design software. His compositions have been performed at venues throughout the United States and Europe, including New World Symphony Center, Theater Huset, Avant Garden, the Park Avenue Armory, and Symphony Space. He is enrolled in the PhD program in music composition at CUNY Graduate Center and currently teaches electronic music at Brooklyn College. Hey, Drake, how's it going? Hey, good. How are you? Really good. Uh, so today we're going to talk about two of your pieces, and I want to start off with sound and space. I want to kind of go chronologically because I want to spend the majority of your time or majority of our time on your piece Spring Flow. Um as it's kind of the one of the more recent pieces for you, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So with sound and space, we're going to hear a excerpt and well, you should tell us what sound and space is first. Sure. So it's a sound installation, um, but it's also interactive. So uh, this recording was made by walking through the space in which the sound installation took place with a handheld recorder. Um, So there's a little bit of ambient noise, but you also hear the way that the sound changes as you move through the space. Um, We had 14 independent audio channels um, and I think about 18 speakers in total. So there was a lot of differentiation in the space as you move through it um, towards the different speakers and the different locations. Um, and the interactive aspect of it was that there are these uh, sensors. They're, they're typically used as motion sensors, but they're called ultrasonic range finders. Okay. And they pick up, you know, the presence of people walking through the space. And I had that data running back into a max MSP patch on the computer that would alter the sound based on the presence of people. So depending on where you walk or how many people are in the space, the sound will react to that in a, in a subtle way. In a subtle way. Right. I remember, I mean, you did this at the, um, the Farnsworth pavilion at rice. I remember, I remember going to this and, um, I remember like Steve and Charlie and Ben and I, like, I think we were just walking around the space and we were we were really trying to figure out like what are we wait if I go here what well you stand there you know like <laughs> like right, really right. trying to figure it out so it, it really yeah. is a subtle way so like what can you give us an example of you know if a single person walks into the room you know what what might happen yeah, so I've I've done it a couple times since then and, and kind of tweaked the nature of the interactivity. But in, in this original um, instance, the way that it worked was that the rangefinders, they detect sort of the distance that you are from the sensor. And so what I did was I kind of imagined that there would be these like golden points in the room that would be a certain amount of, you know, inches from each sensor. And that if you stood in this place it would freeze one of the component sounds. Okay. So you'll hear 
you'll hear in a moment, but um, there are many, many layers of very similar sounds that are all being played over one another simultaneously. And they're all kind of fading in and fading out with this um, kind of breathing rhythm. And the idea is that if you stand in one of these, you know, golden spots or, you know, special spots, that one of the waves is tied to that spot and it will actually, every time it fades in, it will fade in exactly the same without the subtle timbral changes and pitch changes that are um, occurring throughout all of the waves all of the time when people aren't standing there. It seems like a very obvious way to do something like this is like you have those golden points and someone walks in and instead of them freezing it like they are the thing that changes it and that'd be a very like that'd be a very obvious way uh for the for the interactive uh participant in this piece to like know oh i'm doing this but it's yeah i mean for for the for the piece to be constantly changing and then people walk in and they did did you did you feel like people realized how it, how it was working and what they were what they were doing with it? I think once I explained it, um, you know, people got more into it. I would say in that instance, probably was a little bit subtle. I think the the original kind of metaphor of it was that you know nature or the world is always changing around us, and I wanted there to be a little bit of confusion as to how we were affecting it you know and okay and i sort of i sort of had this idea of a space that was perfectly fine without anyone being there and that the the contribution of of the visitor to the space might actually be to disrupt it in a sense rather than um you know necessarily making a, a positive contribution right if that makes sense no that makes um, that makes perfect sense actually uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like uh i mean a space w- with no human interaction being just fine yeah i think we all get that <laughs> right <laughs> yeah so you know maybe a little misanthropic but right um, in in later instantiations i i made the interaction a lot more um, I guess you could say kind of rewarding and a lot more one-to-one where um, instead of having just one particular spot activate something that there was more of a range. And so as you walked towards a sensor, you would um, understand your interaction with it pretty quickly. And by moving back and forth or waving your hand, you could kind of play it like an instrument. Oh, okay. And that's, yeah. And that can be a really satisfying kind of interaction too, but, um, it's different. And like you said, a little bit more conventional. Right. How you said you've done this piece a couple different times and in different spaces. So other, other than kind of tweaking the interactivity, have, have you done anything else to kind of, um, to kind of mold it to the space or kind of tune it to the space? Yeah, um, the second time I did it was at a small art space in Brooklyn. Um, that was kind of kind of a gallery space, um, and I I um, improved the technology a bit from the original version. Whereas before it had been uh, wired to the computer and therefore kind of limited in in how I could distribute the sensors, I I set it up with a wireless system and actually framed the sensors in in um, 
they sell these like artist panels uh-huh. at at art stores, and so I mounted them inside the artist panels and actually hung them up on the walls amongst the art. So it was kind of like just a, another part of the gallery. Oh, that's cool. Um, and that worked really nicely having the 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 wireless technology to be able to do that. Um, and then people could spread out a little bit more and still be interacting with it. Um, and I, I guess sonically a big difference was just that I didn't have access to as many speakers. So I, I think in Brooklyn it ended up being like eight speakers instead of, um, you know, 16 or 18 uh-huh. or whatever it was. I, I think I remember when you did this, you also had a, a like a visual art component to it in uh, at Rice in the first instance. It was something like, I, was, I remember it being very colorful. Yeah, we, we had, I, I was working with, um, an architecture student at Rice. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, and he designed um, these colored strings that were suspended from sort of this balcony space around the ceiling that would come down and they kind of concentrated into a point and then spread out again and they were, um, you know, taut. So you, you had this nice kind of spectrum or gradient effect Um and then also being made of string, they didn't obstruct the sound at all. So they, they were these kind of physical obstacles that encouraged people to take maybe a more unconventional path walking through the space. Right, yeah. Is this your, was this your first installation or have you been interested in kind of installation art for a while? That was my first one. Yeah, that was uh, 2012, I guess. Um, yeah. Have you Have you done more since? Not really on... I've designed more, but I haven't really put them on okay. um, properly. Uh, I did another version of this same installation at a, um, it was sort of a, a one-off concert that I was putting on in collaboration with, with a flutist friend of mine, and I was doing electronics for the show. And so at intermission, we had the installation running as kind of a continuation of the concert. And instead of having um, the the motion sensors, I ended up just, uh, using microphones and picking up the sound of the audience and having the sound respond to the the sound that the audience was making during the intermission. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, I I think it was it was a nice idea, but it ultimately ended up being pretty subtle. Um, and you know, it's it's a little bit. I I I thought it would fit a little bit better than it did. I think because I kind of underestimated the strength of like the concert as a kind of model and event that if you throw an installation in the middle of a concert. It's a very different kind of listening and interaction. And I don't know if that was the ideal circumstances for it. Right. So what we're going to hear is uh, from the original, from the original installation at Rice. And we're going to hear you kind of walking through the space and, and interacting with it.
so let's talk about this piece spring flow and before we talk about this we actually have to talk about indra what is indra so indra is a software system that i developed in max msp and it's meant to be a platform for live improvisational composition and the way that it works is similar to if you're familiar with Earl Brown's open scores. Uh-huh. Um, you can imagine the ensemble having a database of potential musical gestures, and they're all stored as notation, um, as image files on the computer. And everyone's reading from their own computer screen, and there's a conductor at the front of the ensemble who also has a computer screen. And the conductor is sort of directing the flow of gestures based on uh, certain musical parameters. So you can imagine all the notation being tagged with metadata that specifies um, what, what the pitch center is, how resonant it is, what kind of articulation or techniques, um, how long it is, um, all these different qualities. And then the conductor is standing uh, in front of the, the group and specifying, okay, so I want to, let's say that I have, you know, a string quartet in front of me. So I want violin one to be playing only gestures that have a pitch center of A. And I want violin two to only be playing gestures that have a pitch center of E flat. But I also want the viola t- uh, violin two to have only gestures with a really dry sound or dry articulation. Right. And, and I want the cello to have resonant sounds and I want the viola to only have very short sounds. So all these parameters you can specify, and then the the gestures are being loaded automatically through the software to the computer screens that the performers are seeing, and they're filtered based on these kind of large-scale parameters that the conductor is um, implementing. What was the kind of impetus for you to 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 create this to? to create a program because like you said Earl Brown you know he he the, those scores exist a lot of other composers you know write aleatoric music and and the, it, you know it's just on on paper so why why the computer program I I really thought of it in in kind of that historical context of someone like uh Earl Brown um Walter Thompson was another person he's the the uh, inventor of uh, sound painting Mm-hmm. which is the, the sign language for group improvisation. Um, John Zorn's another person, his game pieces, uh, where, you know, again, it's it's a lot of hand signals and signs. Um, there's, I, I like that dynamic of the composer. I guess it creates a separation between the composer and the conductor. And for someone like Earl Brown, often he conducted his own pieces, so he ended right. up kind of alighting those two roles. But potentially you have kind of this distinction between the raw material and how it's shaped for a given performance. Um, and so as someone who's interested in indeterminate music, that was something I could really relate to because often I'll find myself with a lot of material that I feel could be organized in a number of different ways and still be compelling or, or interesting. Um, and so this gives me it, you know, there's a little bit of randomness in the sense that the gestures are just popping up, um, you know, in a, in a random order, as long as they meet the criteria that the conductor has set out. Um, but 
there's there's this this potential again i guess it's kind of this the raw material versus the the kind of the special quality of of performing something live and making decisions live and being able to improvise not just as an individual but also um as an as an ensemble i think you more than anyone anyone else i've ever known seems to be kind of torn between two kind of musical worlds like on one hand there's there's like the hyper rational and meticulously composed camp and on the other side there's this aleatoric and chance camp and i think it feels like your music seems to live kind of in that in the conflict of those two worlds is that fair yeah i think that's an interesting way to put it um i think it gets into kind of fundamental questions about um you know what's what's sometimes referred to as like the difference between power and control yeah um you know i had um an electronic music professor who really emphasized that as as an important thing um this idea that the the more control you have over you know local level details the less power you have to shape things in the moment because you're so preoccupied with the foreground and you know inversely the more power you have the less control you ho- have over um you know individual details and um this seems like a nice middle ground that kind of resolves that issue because um the the software i mean uh because if you take something like if you think of like an like an earl brown score you have you know something like novara or available forms sure um you know those like early 60s pieces you have maybe 20 30 gestures um that the conductor can choose from you know and if you're a good conductor and you know the piece you can you know memorize those gestures pretty well and um call them up as you want them. And and so for me, it was kind of a question of like, well, what if I wanted to do this with like a thousand gestures or 2000 gestures? Yeah. So you start thinking of it as like a, a data set, you know, and then you tag everything with, with, um, metadata and you're able to, you just figure out the right variables that will give you enough control. And then it becomes a very powerful tool in the sense that, you can shape things really dramatically um, with these broad char- uh, broad categories, even though you're not specifying the order of the the gestures. You know, as as the conductor, I don't know um, that you know it's going to be gesture 176 and then gesture 301 and then gesture 42. Um, you know, one after the other. I just know that a bunch of gestures will appear that meet the criteria that I've specified and. Once you choose the right variables, you know, I, I quickly found at least that that was that was good enough for me. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I'm I'm also speaking as a person who has used Indra. Um, right. And, <laughs> the, <laughs> you know, I, I did write a piece for it, which we can talk about later. But the the thing I think that is is kind of interesting about it is that when you go into a piece like by Earl Brown, or by you know some other composer where you you have or, or for instance maybe even uh christian wolf i think like mm-hmm. because there, there you know there's more there, there's certainly more freedom in a christian wolf score but at the same time there are so many rules for you know if right. you look at a christian wolf score and even an earl brown score there there's just like pages and pages of 
of instructions for the right. that is the performer's job to to memorize. And I know that in a in a large score like Earl like Earl Brown's, you know, you're basically just watching the conductor and he's and he's doing what he's doing. But in some of those other pieces, like smaller pieces where it's really there is no conductor, like a Christian Wolf score, or you know, like uh, you know, s- s- some of these other things that are basically just cell cellular gestures that you know you kind of have to traverse through. If this, then that. If that, then this right. other thing. You know, it right. becomes pretty overwhelming pretty fast. And I think one of the the brilliant parts of Indra is that you got back to that place where it's just like, just look at the screen, play what's on the screen. You know, that's it. You it it kind of takes a lot of that the the heavy lifting off of the performer and puts it back onto the composer slash conductor. Yeah, that's um that's definitely something that I was responding to. Um, you know, I've tried a lot of different notations um, in different indeterminate works. And I always find that performers seem to respond best to having some kind of, you know, one-to-one relationship between what they see and what they're being asked to, to produce right? Um, in terms of sound. And in this case, yeah, all of the, all of the potential rules and complexities of, of some kind of indeterminate system are all just programmed into the algorithm and, you know, they're buried in the software, they're invisible. And the, the interaction is, is kind of, um, it's pretty direct, you know, that you, you specify, okay, I want, you know, notes, uh, gestures with a certain pitch center and you get them and the performer just gets, um, a list of them and they don't have to, to navigate instructions. They don't have to flip pages. Um, all the notation is right there. You have kind of two versions of this piece that we're going to listen to spring flow and we're going to listen to kind of your your latest version but i remember when you originally did this i think it was maybe in 2014 it was for a different you know a much different ensemble so the basic the basic setup is the piece is that you have a solo viola which is they are playing just straight up notated written music correct that's right yeah and then you have your four other ensemble members in that case who were uh mm-hmm. who had computer screens in front of them. So that original performance was uh percussion, guitar, uh voice and flute, right? Right. And then this this latest uh version is for two percussionists and electronics. And I wanted to kind of talk about the electronics because mm-hmm. uh the electronics were not a part the were not a part of the original piece. So were those kind of newly composed, or were they, uh, you know, kind of an, an amalgamation of gestures from the other, um, the other parts from the, that, that original version? I guess what I would say is that in the case of this piece, it has some kind of unique properties that that allows it to be flexible and that's that's more or less by design so the original piece like you said is for a violist who's playing a solo that's completely written out it's about um 22 minutes of music um with some pauses to make the whole piece 24 25 minutes um and the performers are reading from uh computer screens which are which are you know receiving the notation in real time um and the idea of the piece was that the 
the violist is kind of a soloist and the performer's material is all derived from the viola solo, but transcribed in sort of a loose creative way for their particular instruments. Okay. Um, and then the idea was that the, the viola would be accompanied by her own material, but in this kind of nonlinear structure. So um, all, there's a, there's kind of a organic coherence to all the material because it, it all comes from the same place and it's it is expressed in this linear uh in a, in a linear fashion with the with the violist who's just playing through the score but the performers are receiving the material in this kind of random order um and what's attractive to me about that is that there you have these kind of longer scale correspondences in terms of time you have not only um you you kind of get away from like a somebody does something and then you hear the variation of it you know a moment later or a couple seconds later it it kind of calls into question what's the original and what's the the transcription right that right. material that the viola plays later might be reflected in the first few notes that the flute played something like that so it's this totally nonlinear system that still has this kind of coherent ecosystem thing to it because it's all um is all the same material right just just transcribed um and then what happens is in the performance instead of having a completely random order to to all this non-linearity what i'm doing is i'm kind of pushing you know the the texture or the harmony here and there and i'm saying okay well let's you know get some some you know a or let's get some you know, whatever, you know, pitch centers are in the piece, um, or let's get some of the the high register here and let's get some of this. So I'm kind of like pushing and kind of adjusting and massaging the randomness. Um, and that's kind of like, for me, that's like the art of it. That's like, um, you know, kind of interpreting the randomness and giving it a little bit of a shape, you know, but also remaining, um, you know, subtle because of the the complexity of the material and and just how much there is. And in this new version, how do the electronics kind of, how did, like, where did the oh, electronics sorry. Yeah, come that from? was the question. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah I, <laughs> but but I, yeah, I like, love the answer you gave yeah. to the question I didn't ask. <laughs> right. Yeah, there you go. Um, so the electronics, um, I, I guess, well, well, the way that the electronics work is that I took samples of the violist playing her solo before the performance so they're not live samples okay um and the re and the reason that i did that was because i wanted to maintain a similar kind of uh non-linear paradigm the 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 big problem for me with with live sampling is that you can only make the sound once the the performer has made it right exactly yeah and i'm, I'm sure you've encountered that in in um, yes. things that you've done as well <laughs> <laughs> and and so it, it you know it ends up getting frustrated because you you um you feel kind of boxed in and you it it becomes a very recognizable kind of dynamic you know um and so i felt pretty comfortable just using uh samples instead of um doing it live and then i did a lot of live processing um of the samples and and that was all done done live um in max so i ended up being pretty busy and that i was doing the electronics and the the you know indra controls at the same time 
Um, but I basically thought of it as, as another voice and, and maybe even a more natural kind of partner to the viola in that kind of context. I mean, that's something that's pretty typical to do with electronics where you have some kind of melody or theme or, you know, some kind of linear structure that the instrument is playing and the electronics job is to like mess it up somehow or yeah. transform it or chop it up. Right. So that that's actually pretty conventional, that that kind of dynamic. So it just happened to be that the, the electronics were, were one of the voices that were doing that. And then the two percussionists as well. I was actually wondering, like, uh, I mean, you, you just explained how you did it, but I was actually wondering if the electronic part could just be controlled by Indra, you know, in terms of like what samples are called when and, you know, how. Uh, that would that would kind of you would have to do a big redesign of the of the interface that but it seems like that that could be done right yeah absolutely i mean i and there's actually two different ways you could do it that would be interesting i mean one way would be to automate the electronic sounds directly based on the conductor's um instructions into right. indra Another way to do it would be to create some kind of notation for the electronics performer and give them a little bit of latitude to interpret the notation. Yeah, and, and that's and that's so, actually thought that's right. what I thought you were doing or I mean I it it seems like it could yeah, it could go either way and uh and if if the if the samples are being processed live, it seems like the latter uh method you just you just proposed would be would be a great thing for that, you know. And it would add this yeah. this other like this other dynamic into the piece. Yeah, I I actually I, that sounds like a really cool idea. I hadn't quite um, thought of that as a as a thing, but yeah, that that would be um, that would be really cool to try. And and of course, it wouldn't have to be you know me performing on the electronics. I think what would be really cool would be to have an ensemble member on electronics who is reading the notation. Um, I think when when I was performing the electronics, I kind of knew what I wanted. Um, so I, you know, so it probably wasn't a, like as, as pure an, an interaction as it could have been because I, you know, I was looking at the viola part and then also doing the electronics. And then I also knew exactly what was going to happen in the ensemble sure. because I was, you know, controlling that. So having somebody who's not the conductor performing the electronics could be, um, really interesting too. What, do you call this a new version or is this, I mean, this is, this is just another, kind of possibility of the piece right yeah i think it's it's kind of inherent in you know the whatever you know the 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 piece whatever that means um that you know the piece has like a gestalt which is like this solo which is and then part of the process of performing it is transcribing the material in the solo and preparing it for performance um I, I kind of I kind of like that rather than thinking of the piece as embodied within a score. It's embodied, you know, partially within a score, but also within a performance practice that's right. kind of emerging as I experiment with it. Yeah, and I mean, I could I could imagine that, you know, if you if you just take the the gestures that you already you know make, I as I have done a piece for this, I know how long it takes to make those gesture files and code them and get them all organized right. and all that stuff. So it's like, yeah. you've already got gestures for flute, guitar, voice, and percussion. And it and it just seems like, you know, you could, at, at the present moment, Indra is only set up to uh, do four different voices at a time, correct? Right. So right. 
so it seems like you know you could have two flutes and a guitar and viola four percussion four voices four flutes four guitar you know or or any any combination of, of of those original instruments and just keep doing new new uh like realizations of the piece that could keep the piece very fresh yeah i i really like that idea um it's it's kind of um like cage has uh the concert for piano and orchestra you know where where any of the parts can be right yeah broken off as solos and you don't even need the the solo piano necessarily or music for or um i think atlas ecliptic you can play the same way i i kind of like that idea of of being able to you know work with what you've got since this this latest um latest realization of the piece is for percussion i was kind of wondering what the what the percussion gestures the gesture files look like for this piece are are you are you specifying particular instruments or are you just kind of specifying like categories of instruments um you know i i think i didn't even specify categories of instruments i think it was more just kind of con kind of notated rhythms with a with a pitch contour specified sometimes or not specified other times Uh um and we ran through the piece one time with one setup and they were kind of listening to see if you know they wanted to change things in their setup um but I, i gave them pretty wide latitude um kind of in the spirit of like an adventure and an improvisation and and I guess most importantly how close they could get to certain viola sounds. I mean, I I wasn't really looking to recreate the viola sounds, um, but every once in a while, you know, there'd be some kind of uh there'd be some sound that they would come to, you know, by, you know, choosing the right combination of instruments and mallets that would um really capture i guess like the essence of of a viola gesture right that I was okay. for. yeah and then kind of talking about the the sound of this piece i mean you you already mentioned that you know many of the gestures are well it seems like all the gestures kind of stem from that original viola solo uh viola solo yeah in theory right I, and i and i think that all right yeah, I think that gives the piece a really cozy. Because my question was going to be before I before I learned that is that you made twenty four minutes sound really cohesive. So that oh well, thank you. <laughs> I mean, the and the kind of uh, the kind of sound world you created, especially in this in, in this latest realization. You know, I mm-hmm. thought I, I thought was just really really effective for the piece. Like I was, you know like you think about other 24 minute pieces and you think, Oh boy. All right. I'm going to have to slog through this or something. But, right. But like there was, there was something about the piece that was alive. And, you know, you mentioned kind of breathing rhythms in the, in the other, in uh sound and space, but I actually felt like this kind of had this uh, similar kind of feel to it where this, there's these long pushes and pulls and uh, it was for me. It was just really, really effective. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Um, yeah, I mean, I I was very pleased with this version, and compared to the older version, I'm much happier with this with this new one. Um, I don't know how much it's a function of a different instrumentation or different performers. I mean, I, I kind of deep down, I wonder if it if I didn't kind of have my my finger on the scale by 
being able to perform my own electronics. So I was, I feel like I was really able to, to shape the flow of the piece um, with the electronics um, in a way, you know, maybe even in a more direct way than, than honestly, um, the, the Indra software notation was, um, was doing it. Um, at different points, they would have an indication to improvise. Right. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, you know, one percussionist would be improvising. Sometimes they both would be, sometimes the other one would be. And the violist has a little bit of latitude for, for improvising as well. Um, so I tried to, I guess I tried to balance it. I mean, I had my own, you know, preferences that, that I was able to kind of prioritize through, through, you know, how I deployed the electronics and how I was adjusting the Indra filters. But I also tried to counterbalance it with, um, giving them flexibility and, and kind of agency to, to shape the piece a little bit, which, you know, which I think is the most interesting thing. Um, when you, when you really have like two minds or, or, you know, multiple minds that are kind of contributing to the, to the result in a meaningful way. Right. Just, just in my own experience with Indra, um, I, I have this piece that I wrote because you were, I think we were, I I don't remember when we kind of, you brought this up to me. I think it was maybe just in an email or something like we were reaching out to each other. But it sounded uh-huh. it sounded really really cool, and I wanted to do something with it. And uh, uh-huh. this, this opportunity came along to write a piece for uh, Lydia Hans of Frame Dance, who's been on the podcast, and we actually talked about this piece a little bit more about her uh-huh. more about her frustration with me um, in in terms <laughs> of like you know I, we're gonna have a thirty minute piece for four dancers and string quartet and it's a month before the performance and she's like rob i have no idea what this sounds like (laughs) (laughs) right right but you know and and, you know it's it's always going to be different i mean more or less but that was that was something that was kind of attractive to me about this and um it's that each time I do this piece, I can reshape it. I complete can completely reimagine the formal properties, the you know the juxtaposition of gestures, you know all these things. So I was able to do it uh, for for the um, for the piece with dance. I actually um, because there were kind of so many moving parts, and Lydia and I had talked so thoroughly about what each section would be because you know i had to give her something to go off of Uh so we kind of we kind of just decided okay these these are going to be loud sections and these are going to be the types of gestures okay then it's going to switch to you know this thing where you know we're handing off solos to to different players and so because it it kind of had in a way it kind of had to be a little bit more strict Uh um i actually kind of hacked into your software a little bit and automated everything um based on based on a timeline so i just had yeah yeah i just kind of had a timer running and all of the all of the event changes because we were talking about you know having to change like you know three different parameters or four different parameters in the space of a couple seconds for every single instrument Right. You know, so it got it got to the point where I was like, I don't think I can do this live. You know, this would this would 
the the coordination it i it, i didn't want the piece to kind of stall because of me you know right so <laughs> right. um and uh so yeah i did i did that completely like uh completely automated with the gestures which i which i kind of get is you know somewhat opposite of the of the original intention but it was still you know this it was basically i was allowing the computer to do what i could not physically do i think um yeah and we you know we had this broad these broad formal characteristics and then i did it again here in china yeah i did it again here in china and um it was uh i all i had was a string trio so kind of complete and it you know it wasn't going to be 30 minutes anymore so i can kind of completely reimagine the piece all the same gestures different formal characteristics different on you know different ensemble different ideas so it was really fun for me to kind of like get into that new space of okay well i'm back with this piece again how do i kind of you know reimagine it like reshape it remold it to form something new Cool. Yeah. What is kind of the future for Indra? Do you have any do you have any different ideas for it or is it pretty much set? Um I mean I'm I'm always you know thinking of ways to expand it. I mean, one thing that I think you did um in addition to the automation you were describing was that you also uh changed some of the categories, right? That instead of using objective musical parameters, I think you Yeah, I I made the right? made the categories more um you know just just related to kind of what i was doing so like having because you know with with string quartet i wasn't really doing that much in, in terms of like d really different articulations or really different kind of ideas about resonance so i ended up just kind of making them kind of generic filters that that i could just assign assign right. whatever i wanted to Right. So you could say theme one and theme two, you know, and gradually move from theme one to theme two if you wanted or something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that kind of getting more creative with with the filters is a really interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Who are the performers we're going to hear on this on this recording? Um, so the violist is Callie Siakomsky and the percussionists are Mike Perdue and Jude Traxler. And then you're, and like you said, you're handling the live electronics as well as doing kind of playing the conductors. Right, right. Awesome. This is Spring Flow.
I'll ask you the last question. The question that I always ask everyone who's on the podcast is, how did you come to music as something you wanted to pursue for your life? Um, well, I'd say um, in, in middle school, I started playing guitar and um, as many composers do these days. Um, and I was writing songs for my rock band and that continued in high school. Um, but actually it was a college trip in high school where I heard um, a theory lecture and um, as ridiculous as that sounds, it was uh, Schoenberg Opus 11 piano pieces. Uh-huh. And I I thought that I really had not heard anything like that. Um, but it was, you know, so I was being introduced to the music for the first time. But on top of that, it was in the context of a theory lecture with, with a really um, excellent professor who was, you know, describing the, the music in a really attractive way and explaining, you know, some little bits about its structure. And that was really my first experience with that kind of theory as well. Um, and so I think, you know, getting into classical music began for me as kind of imitating, you know, these sounds that I thought were really mysterious and cool and, um, you know, just compelling to me. Um, but later on, you know, it, it became more about trying to to express something else rather than just imitating sounds that I liked. And I guess um, I remember hearing another composer, you know, I think the question was how, uh, what, what does, um, you know, classical music contribute? What does writing, you know, new concert music contribute? And he said an alternative, which I thought was a really good answer. And it kind of stuck with me. It's this you know, and maybe it's what I seized on initially was that, you know, there were things in the world socially and politically that were untenable and, uh, you know, depressing and, and disappointing and, and just so, um, you know, problematic in so many ways. And it, it was kind of this idea that things could be a different way. And I think of art as kind of this space um, where you can imagine things to be a different way than they are and not not in a you know casually revisionist kind of way where like this you know this bothers me and you know get rid of this but you know this idea that you can kind of engage on a different level um you know of 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 discourse and subtlety and and sophistication and that um there should be a space in the world for for you know this kind of thinking which is a little bit different than um the way things are usually done well buddy as as fractured as the conversation was (laughs) just due to just due to skype or or facetime technology issues yeah uh i've got to say you know it's really it's really great to to have this kind of conversation it's actually you know um one of the big reasons i uh, i wanted to do a podcast was to kind of like reconnect with with composers and and talk to composers you know obviously being over here and being the only composer in my school it gets a little isolating and right i was and we you know coming out of school we're so used to you know just you know going down the hall going to the lounge seeing who's there and sit down and like oh let's talk about music or let's not talk about music but you know let's let's still have like a conversation as composers have and one of the i thought i always thought that one of the best things was just being able to like in our old apartment 
complex in Houston, being able to walk right upstairs and say, Hey Drake, you want to go get a beer and walk yeah. down to Ernie's and then, yeah. and then, you know, talk about boulez while drinking or something. Right. Like, that was, that was <laughs> so great. And I, star. you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah exa- exactly. So, so being, you know, that, that was like kind of have missing that, you know, yeah. that, that kind of interaction was one of the things that led me to to want to do this podcast. So it's been great having you on. Um, before you. we go, uh, your website is, you have a couple websites that people can go to to check out your, your stuff. I do. Um, yeah, it's my personal composer website is uh, drakeanderson.com. And that's Anderson with an S-E-N. And then I also have a website that kind of features my electronic and technology-based products, uh, products, whoops, projects. <laughs> um, and that's uh, creativeinteraction.org, which I chose right. because I was able to buy that domain name. So I thought that's what it's going to be called. <laughs> <laughs> but how often do you get that? Awesome. Right? So Yeah, um, right? <laughs> And you are notoriously a composer who is not on social media. That's true. I don't know how notorious. Um, it's sort of like a, like a paradox, right? That you can't be notorious unless you're on Facebook, right? But Right, that's true. <laughs> con- conspicuous in my absence, I guess. I guess, yeah. So go to Drake's website. Check out, uh, check out these pieces. You have uh, plenty, plenty of videos and, and other things up there. Really good stuff. Thank you so much for doing this, Drake. Thank you, Rob. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.